couldn't tell them apart. They were sheep, stupid animals programmed by nature to mate and graze and bleed out their wishes to the obese retired school principal who sat on his ass in the mall's sorry-looking North Pole. My animosity was getting the best of me until I saw in their behavior a solution to my troubling identity crisis. Let them have their roles of gift wrap and gaudy personalized stockings. If it meant something to them, I wanted nothing to do with it. This year, I would be the one without the shopping bags, the one wearing black in protest of their thoughtless commercialism. My very avoidance would set me apart and cause these people to question themselves in ways that would surely pain them. Who are we, they'd ask, plucking the ornaments off their trees. What have we become, and why can't we be more like that somber fellow who washes dishes down at the Piccadilly cafeteria?
We deserve it.
him on my radio call-in shows. Had my father been driving, we would have locked all the doors and ignored the stop signs, speeding through the area as quickly as possible because that's what smart people did. Pulled over and parked behind a van, whose owner stood examining his flattened tire with a flashlight. Things might get a little rough up there, so just do what I tell you and hopefully no one will get hurt. She flipped her hair over her shoulder and stepped out of the car, kicking aside the cans and bottles that lined the curb. My sister meant business, whatever it was, and in that instant she appeared beautiful and exotic and dangerously stupid. Local teens slain for sport, the headlines would read. Holiday hijinks end in homicide. Maybe someone should wait with the car, I whispered, but she was beyond reason charging up the street in her sensible shoes with a rugged, determined gait. There was no fumbling for a street address or doorbell. Lisa seemed to know exactly where she was going. I followed her into a dark vestibule and up a flight of stairs, where without even bothering to knock, she threw open an unlocked door and stormed into a filthy, overheated room that smelled of stale smoke, sour milk, and seriously dirty laundry. Three odors that, once combined, can peel the paint off of walls. This was a place where bad things happened to people who clearly deserved nothing but the worst. The stained carpet was littered with cigarette butts, and clotted, dust-covered flypaper hung from the ceiling like beaded curtains. In the far corner of the room, a man stood beside an overturned coffee table, illuminated by a shadeless lamp that broadcast his shadow, huge and menacing, against the grimy wall. He was dressed casually in briefs and a soiled T-shirt, and had thin, hairless legs, the color and pebbled texture of a store-bought chicken. We had obviously interrupted some rite of unhappiness, something that involved shouting obscenities while pounding upon a locked door with a white-tasseled loafer. The activity consumed him so completely that it took the man a few moments to register our presence. Squinting in our direction, he dropped the shoe and steadied himself against the mantel.
get you another. Hearing a fresh, slurred voice in the house, my brother and sisters rushed from their rooms and gathered to examine Lisa's friend, who clearly cherished the attention. Angels! You're a pack of goddamn angels! She was surrounded by admirers, and her eyes brightened with each question or comment. Which do you like better, my sister Amy asked. Spending the night with strange guys or working in a cafeteria? What were the prison guards really like? Do you ever carry a weapon? How much do you charge if somebody just wants a spanking? One at a time, one at a time, my mother said. Give her a second to answer.
This something's fucked up with this turntable. Colonel Steve Austin suddenly remembers he has not bought any gifts for his friends and relatives. He decides to go to Jeffrey's, the large department store downtown. Can I help you, sir? Yes, I'm looking for something in person. Any particular fragrance? Uh, I thought you might be able to suggest something. Well, there certainly is a large variety to choose from. I can see that. That's where the store Santa Claus holds court. Probably some kid didn't get what he wanted and is registering a complaint. Hey, stop that man! He stole my Christmas present! Hey, you! Stop! Watch it, mister. 
Sorry, pal. I'm in a hurry. I understand. Christmas rush. Yeah, well, I gotta run. Hey, mister, give me my Christmas present. Go away. Give it to me. Come on, kid. Go away. What seems to be the problem? He stole my Christmas present. He wanted Santa Claus for me. Look, pal, she's my daughter. I wanted to surprise her. Now she's gonna rule the whole thing. He's not my father. Give me my present. I think you better give it to her. Get out of my way. Put that gun away. Someone could get hurt. Not if you leave me alone. Now stand aside. I'm walking out of here. Oh, you're not. At the Office of Scientific Intelligence, Colonel Steve Austin is in the security conference with his boss, Oscar Goldman. Good thing you called me in on this, Steve. When I grabbed that guy, he dropped the package and it broke open. I could see the thing inside was no ordinary Christmas present. That's why I picked it up and got it to you. Steve, you seem to have a talent for finding trouble. But in this case, you may have stumbled on a major espionage ring. An espionage ring? Steve, the man you fought with in the department store is Harrison Fredericks. For a long while, he's been known to be a free agent in the espionage market, selling his services to the highest bidder. But what is even more interesting to us is what he was carrying in that package. What was it? It was an electronic fuel cell for our latest attack missile, the SYR-9. The SYR-9? I thought that was out in California. Landing on the Arctic terrain, Steve and Oscar were accosted by the enemy agent Ramat at gunpoint, captured and locked up in an old warehouse. Is the wound serious, Oscar? I don't think so, Steve. Looks like a scratch. Where are we? It's a warehouse. Where are we?
expect to resume normal broadcasting shortly. you could make it. No problem, Oscar. I'm staying in town for the holidays. Steve, the Air Defense Command in Colorado Springs picked up an unusual radio message the other day on a restricted frequency. No identification codes? That's part of the problem. All messages received over the defense network are preceded by an identification code, and they are followed by a second ident code before signing off. And this communication has no code on either side. They can't even decode the message. What are we going to do? It defies analysis, Steve. As a matter of fact, nothing on record as language or numeric code is anything like it. I've called in Dr. Landis. Ethel Landis? She's the top expert in the field of coded communication. And she has a lot of kooky ideas, Oscar. I know, Steve, but we can't afford to overlook any possibilities.
thousand watts in a big acoustic tower. Security's so tight tonight. Oh, they're ready for a tussle. Gotta keep your backstage passes. Cause your promoter had the muscle. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. Oh, it's going. No one knows. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. Oh, it's going. No one knows. Yeah, the top villains at the head of all nations. Worthy men from Spain and Siam. All day discussions with the Russians, but they still went ahead and beat all the plan. Now, up to the U.S. representative, he's the one with a
connections, and they've made a very nice living for me, and it seems to have worked. Did you ever feel that this time the horror stories jinxed you, that something that you feared and had written about was coming true? No, it never even crossed my mind. Um, it's strange because off and on uh, in my career as a writer, I have certainly written. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest Stephen King was nearly killed in June of 1999 while taking his daily walk. He was walking along the gravel shoulder of Route 5, a two-lane highway near his home in Maine, when he was struck by a van driven by Brian Smith, who had several prior convictions for speeding and reckless driving. Over a year later, Smith was found dead in his home. King is still recovering from his injuries, which included nine breaks in his right leg, his right knee split almost directly down the middle, a fracture of his right hip, four broken ribs, and a scalp laceration that required nearly 30 stitches. His spine was chipped in eight places. Yet, fairly early in his recovery, he returned to writing. I spoke with Stephen King in 2000, after the publication of his book, On Writing, which is part memoir, part reflection on his craft. The last chapter is about the accident. We started with a reading. Most of the sight lines along the mile of Route 5, which I walk, are good. But there is one stretch, a short, steep hill, where a pedestrian walking north can see very little of what might be coming his way. I was three-quarters of the way up this hill when Brian Smith, the owner and operator of the Dodge van, came over the crest. He wasn't on the road. He was on the shoulder. My shoulder. I had perhaps three-quarters of a second to register this. It was just time enough to think, my God, I'm going to be hit by a school bus. I started to turn to my left. There is a break in my memory here. On the other side of it, I'm on the ground, looking at the back of the van, which is now pulled off the road and tilted to one side. This recollection is very clear and very sharp, more like a snapshot than a memory. There is dust around the van's taillights. The license plate and the back windows are dirty. I registered these things with no thought that I had been in an accident or of anything else. It's a snapshot, that's all. I'm not thinking. My head has been swapped clean. There's another little break here.
Shri Ma, which respectfully addresses the Divine Mother, Kali Ma. Year old girl or older, we've already heard you, or younger, say that, or somebody, or and a not, girl? A, not a guy, and none of you all little people. I hate the little people. Come over, yeah, Cabri, get this. No, oh, wait, the girls, the female fans. My father's gonna be watching this. Okay, we're at Chad's house right there. It's Chad's house. We're going to my house. Go, 
Run.
Vote with your dollar. Send a dollar to us. Send more. Send less. We need it. in the yoga of sound, I would like to invite you to move your body in rhythm to a devotional mantra to Kali, the great feminine force and personification of Shakti as primal power. Start by standing with your right hand pointing upward and away from you. All your fingers are held close together. Your left hand is pointing downward. Once again, all your fingers are held close together. All your fingers are held close together. 
This beautiful gesture embodies the energy of all the great goddesses, offering solace to the suffering and blessing the world with divine grace. Begin to turn slowly and deliberately while maintaining this mudra. You will remember that to turn clockwise draws you into your deep center, while turning anti-clockwise moves you outward into the world. Let your body move in the direction it feels most inclined to. Clockwise motion will draw all energy into your center, transforming it, while the opposite will allow energy to flow out of your deep center into the world, offering healing to where it is most needed at this time. Whatever images come to your mind, be aware that you are blessing and relieving suffering through chanting this mantra with devotion. There are four exclamations in this mantra. Shri Ma, which respectfully addresses the Divine Mother. Kali Ma. Adhi Ma, Primal Mother and Pahima, which is Holy Mother. Each musical variation of the mantra is repeated twice, so listen and then sing along. Once the variations become familiar, you can sing continuously. After the chanting, allow your body to slowly come to stillness. Start now by saying the mantra with me. Shrima Kalima
the rioters had abandoned all concern for themselves, for their safety, and for their freedom. Some threw rocks, stones, cans of beer, and soda at police in cars and police on foot. Heavily burdened people staggered out of the doors of supermarkets, followed by billows of smoke. Men and women carried electrical appliances in their arms, and some pushed washers and dryers down the middle of the street. However, nothing, not the voices trained to relay excitement, nor the images of unidentifiable looters entering and leaving unlighted shops, could, cap could capture the terrifying threat of a riot, like the stench of scorched wood and burning rubber. Radios blared, Watts is on fire. Television cameras filmed a group of men turning over a car and a young woman throwing a bottle at a supermarket window. The glass seemed to break in slow motion. In fact, throughout the duration of the explosion, every incident shown on television seemed acted out at a pace slower than real time. Sirens screamed through the night, and television screens showed gangs of young men refusing to allow fire trucks a chance to put out fires. Burn, baby, burn. The instruction came clear over the radios. Burn, baby, burn. Then I walked. The smell had turned putrid as plastic furniture and supermarket meat departments smoldered. When I reached a main street, I stopped and watched as people pushed piled high store carts out of burning buildings. Police seemed to be everywhere and nowhere, watching from inside their cars. A young boy, his arms laden, his face knotted in concentration, suddenly saw me. He asked, you want a radio? I was amazed that there was no guilt in his voice. I said, no, no, not yet. Thanks anyway. Ordinarily, I would have read in the boy's face or felt or heard. Uh-oh, this woman knows I've been stealing. There would have been at least an ounce of shame. But his approach had been conspiratorial, as if to say, we're in this together. I know you not only know what I'm doing, but you approve of it and would do it yourself if you could. Smoke and screams carried in the air. Someone behind me was cursing long, keen streaks of profanity. It became hard to discern if the figures brushing past me were male or female, young or old. The farther I walked, the more difficult it was to breathe. I had turned and started back to my car when a sound cut the air. 
The loud whine of police sirens was so close it stabbed into my ears. Policemen in gas masks emerged out of the smoke, figures from a nightmare. Alarm flooded me, and in a second, I was dislocated. It seemed that the sirens were in my nose, and smoke packed my ears like cotton. Two policemen grabbed a person in front of me. They dragged the man away as he screamed, Take your hands off me, you bastard. Let me go. I ran, but I couldn't see the pavement, so it was nearly impossible to keep my footing. I ran anyway. Someone grabbed for me, but I shrugged off the hand and continued running. My lungs were going to burst, and my calves were cramping. I pushed myself along. I was still running when I realized I was breathing clean air. I read the street signs and saw I was almost a mile away from my car, but at least I wasn't in jail. Because I had run in the opposite direction from where I had parked, I would have to circle Watts to find my car.
thousand watts. Our your friend Charlie Ponchop was a glorious blaze. I heard the flames lick, then eat the trays of zircons mounted in red gold alloys. Easter clothes and stolen furs burned in the attic. Radios and TVs crackled with static plugged in only to a racial outlet. Hospitality Southern style, corn grits and you all smile. Whole blocks novi, brand new stars. Policemen caught in their brand new cars. Chugga, 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 get me one nigga. Looting and burning, he won't get far. Lightning, a hundred watts. Detroit, Newark, and New York. Screeching nerves, exploding minds, lives tied to a policeman's whistle and a welfare worker's doorbell finger. Spirit walked with me on my second visit to the exploding section of Watts. I became invisible in the black community. I had to stop and stand still when I realized that no one seemed to see me. When I had visited Watts on the first day of my new job, no one spoke to me or commented on my presence, but I was seen. This time, I could have been in a white neighborhood. When a black person appears in a white part of town, there's a moment of alarm. But if the black doesn't appear threatening, he is erased from the white mind immediately. In the black community, a black person is always given her humanity. On this visit to Watts, the responses were different. Neither the looters, the police, the spectators, nor the National Guard took notice of me. A group of young men was bouncing a car filled with white passengers whose faces looked like Halloween masks through the car windows. Terror bulged from their eyes, and if the windows had been open, I would have heard the screams pouring out of their wide, gaping mouths. A phalanx of police slipped by me and were upon the rioters quickly and quietly. The officers began handcuffing the offenders, and I turned my attention to the now-settled car. Its inhabitants were exchanging smiles that I didn't read as smiles of relief but rather of satisfaction. They had come to Watts to get a thrill, and hadn't they done just that? The newly arrested men were marched close enough for me to touch them, but neither they nor the police regarded me. I came upon some people who were sauntering down the main street, casually taking in the sights, they were so at ease in that uneasy time and place that it was obvious that they lived in the neighborhood. Their concentration was on the stores and the burned-out shells of buildings, so they didn't see me. The havoc now had areas of calm, 
and either I brought serenity with me or it found me wherever I was. I watched as people sifted through debris. Each whole cup or unbroken plate was treated as a treasure. A woman smiled with pleasure when she found a matched pair of shoes. A man passed me carrying a pair of well-worn pants. He was grinning. On the first day of insurgence, 